name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club Shocktober Edition. Oh. How? <laughs> I want to suck your blood. Uh, rattling chains, rattling chains. Oh no, look, there's a Frankenstein. And wait, is that <laughs> Frankenstein... Boris Karloff, and yes, his name is Frankenstein. He was created by a doctor named Frankenstein, and being his son, his last name would also be Frankenstein. Wow. Ah! <laughs> Isn't it weird, Will, that we've never talked about Boris Karloff up until now? It is weird, because probably more than any other person, uh, he is the cinematic embodiment of horror. Uh, probably still, even. Is that is that too grand a statement? No, I think that's a pretty, you know, you know real statement, just because... Frankenstein is probably one of the most iconic monsters that there ever was. But at the same time, while he acted in hundreds of movies, there's not any particular one that the population at large would point to and be like, ah, yes, the other great Boris Karloff performance other than The Mummy. And they're just angry that, you know, the actual wrapped up mummy isn't in the movie that much. Boris Karloff will forever be immortal for just the image of the Frankenstein monster. You know, you know, it's funny. Uh, this is maybe a digression, but when he died, uh, often newspapers, the photo they ran with the obituary was Glenn Strange, the guy who played him in uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the name Boris Karloff endures. And yeah, I was trying to think, why had we never talked about Boris Karloff, given that we talked about his most prominent rival, Bela Lugosi, like years ago on this podcast and have talked about Bela Lugosi pretty regularly, just just in passing. Well, I'm going to say because... We love Bela Lugosi, and also Bela Lugosi really climbed into the dumps early on in his career, and that there's something interesting to see Bela working within that system, giving it his all in Poverty Row Productions. And that's not something that Boris did until way late in his career when he did the Mexican pictures. He was always a studio guy. It's true. Uh, Bela Lugosi has, I guess, in some ways, a more dramatic career arc or a melodramatic career arc. He had certain depths that you kind of can't believe. I mean, Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla with a pair of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis imitators, or of course, the Ed Wood movies. When Boris Karloff did the Mexican movies at the very end of his life, there's something just kind of like run of the mill in the sadness of that. You know, it's quite typical. You don't get Boris hamming it up as much as you would want because he's old. He's on oxygen. He just can't do that kind of stuff anymore. Well, while you see Bella in the Ed Wood films, he is giving it his all like it's the greatest performance that he could ever give. And that's where the magnetic attraction lays. I would say Boris Karloff, at least working in English, had a greater range than Bella Lugosi did. I mean, Lugosi, mm-hmm. uh, among the many things that hampered his career was the fact that he had this very thick Hungarian accent that he never shook, you know, so that limited his roles. But like, there's a personality to Bela Lugosi that I think we're drawn to. You know, there's a sort of, uh, he has a consistency uh, in all of his performances. Like, I can watch Bela Lugosi in virtually anything. I've seen him in some of the worst movies of all time, and I'm not even talking about the Ed Wood movies. I'm talking about, like, Old Mother Riley meets the vampire. The argument would be that Boris also has that baseline of quality, that you're always getting his voice his performance when you watch his films. But going through the pictures that we watched this week, I think what's interesting is that because he's working in the studio, he's kind of surrounded by a quality that rises to his level. But by doing that, 
kind of softens his performance where you're like, ah, this is good, but I wish it was maybe a little bit worse to make Boris that much more interesting in the role. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's some truth to that. I think like Bella Lugosi in The Devil Bat really pops in a way that Boris Karloff sometimes doesn't. But anyway, I, I don't want to like sound like I'm badmouthing Boris Karloff because watching these movies was a reminder to me that, I mean, he really is great, right? Oh, he's amazing. Yeah. And there are a couple of different kinds of Boris Karloff performances. I mean, I think one reason why we had never done him before is because in a lot of his roles, he's a bit of a chameleon. You know, Bela Lugosi has that very consistent personality, but when you watch Frankenstein or The Old Dark House or The Mummy or The Raven or some of the classic ones. <laughs> the classic The Raven? The Roger Corman comedy? No, I, I was thinking the Lou Landers Universal one from uh, from the 30s. I wouldn't put the Corman one necessarily near the top of his filmography. No, the one where Boris Karloff like couldn't even go down some stairs because he was too elderly. <laughs> I, I, I do think that one has certain pleasures. But I mean, in those early ones from the 30s, they were really hyping him up as the new Lon Chaney, you know, the man of a thousand faces. But then there's another body of films, which probably encompasses most of his movies, where, yeah, there is a a more consistent character that he plays of a sort of kindly seeming older man, like a kindly seeming mad scientist with this. Yeah, he's always a mad scientist. I mean, Bela Lugosi got struck with that as well. But Boris, boy, he seems to have a hundred mad scientist roles under his belt. And he always has that, you know, lisping British accent. And in one of the movies that we watched, The Man They Could Not Hang, part of the horror of it is that this seemingly kindly man is driven to such horror or is capable of such horror. By the way, we didn't watch Targets again, which is certainly one of his best movies, as well as one of his very last. And you'll remember that in Targets, it was sort of a meta movie where he played this old, very Boris Karloff-like movie star. He essentially played himself. And in that movie, he was coming to terms with the fact that, well, his brand of horror has become outmoded in this world of, like, mass shootings and uh, the Vietnam War and, you know, like real horror. And I did think about that a bit watching these movies, because in the movies where, you know, he's not wearing heavy makeup, where he's like playing a a kindly seeming mad scientist or where he's playing Mr. Wong or a character like that. Oh, boy. Yeah. Problematic, by the way. Yes. Uh, But in those movies, There is always a sort of, he's a bit like Vincent Price, where he often has a sort of ironic remove. I was thinking of that story where when he was shooting the black cat, supposedly just as the cameras were about to roll, he'd he'd say something like, here comes the heavy. (laughs) You see that sense of humor. You see that sort of knowing theatricality in a lot of his movies, which I think is different than somebody like Bela Lugosi and is certainly different from the generation of horror that displaced Karloff in the 60s and 70s. I think that boy, talked a lot about the fact that he was a little bit disquieted by the fact that he was a horror guy, (laughs) that it was always something he was a little bit uncomfortable with. You'll see interviews with him where he's like, you know, horror is about revulsion. Terror is about spine tingling, and I prefer terror. And so like monster stuff and other things like that, the fact that they followed him for his entire life is something that he was always a little bit uncomfortable with and may also play into the fact that his films are kind of tame in a way that Bella's weren't because Bella, again, was at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, 
I know that we keep going back to Mr. Lugosi, but that's just because he is such a point of comparison to Boris, the man who is making pennies on Boris's dollars. So Boris Karloff was born William Henry Pratt in in 1887. Uh, he was born in England. His father was a member of the Indian Civil Service, and Karloff himself had Indian heritage. You know, he had Indian blood, which is something that he always hid throughout his life. He hid even though that... He would play minority characters in like so many movies. Yeah, I mean, he he really couldn't hide it. He looked darker. So when he came to Hollywood and started acting in the 1920s in a lot of silent films, typically playing henchman roles or or heavy roles, you know, he was often cast as ethnic characters and in fact would continue to be cast as ethnic characters pretty much for the rest of his life. I was overjoyed to see that he spent 10 years in Western Canada acting in national film board shorts, including his first big role in The Deadlier Sex, where he played an evil French Canadian. That's right. We have a legitimate claim on him. And most of his movies before the 1930s were pretty cheap. They were pot boilers. His big break before Frankenstein, though, was for uh, Howard Hawks in his movie The Criminal Code, where he plays a very memorable henchman role. And it was that role, as well as working on the Universal lot, that got him his role in Frankenstein. Now, we've talked about Frankenstein on our James Whale episode, and also on our Robert Flory episode, but let's talk about the film from the perspective of Boris Karloff's performance and what he brings to this movie. And I think something that's really important is that Boris Karloff has a face that you can easily draw a caricature of. That, like, the way that it's defined, it's right there even before Jack Pierce puts his makeup on. Like, oh, this is Frankenstein. It's one of the most amazing faces. I mean, just the the shape of it, the cheekbones. You could barely ask for better. Beyond, you know, the expressionist style, James Whale's direction of the movie, the soundscape, the production design, it all comes down to... Do you find Frankenstein sympathetic in this role? And I think Boris brings a lot to his performance. Every moment that he's on screen, there is something just pathetic, but also sympathetic about his Frankenstein and the way that he just kind of like reacts to light, the way that he gets angry. There isn't the kind of like, oh, boy, this is so frightening. I mean, I'm sure people were when they saw the movie for the first time. I mean, were you ever scared of the original Frankenstein as a kid, Will? No. And I mean, I think it's important to remember that when the 1931 Frankenstein came out, there were images in the movie that, you know, I I mean, it really was a different time. The opening scene in the cemetery of that movie where the hunchbacked assistant like climbs up and cuts the hanging body. I mean, people were actually not really used to seeing a hanging man in a movie or in that opening scene where a casket is being buried apparently just the sound of the dirt hitting the coffin as the gravediggers were burying it apparently that was very startling and disquieting for 1931 audiences and then frankenstein came at the screen and people were like ah <laughs> jumping out of the seat even though that was like you know 30 years since the invention of I, I mean i would love to travel back in time and see this movie with a 1931 audience but you know i'm not even sure if when i was a kid the sympathetic side of the monster fully registered with me the first time i saw it maybe it did i think 
I think when I was like eight or nine years old, I was thinking of monsters pretty much just in terms of being monsters. I mean, watching the movie now, I don't know, maybe you just develop more empathy as you get older. I mean, absolutely. Children are little monsters who cared for no one but themselves. Yeah. And I mean, the Boris Karloff monster basically is a child. And I think it helps having a little distance from childhood to recognize that. Two of the very memorable scenes of this movie are his first entrance, where uh, he wanders out of the room and then Dr. Frankenstein opens the skylight and he lifts up his arms to try to feel the light, to try to grasp the sun, basically. I mean, that's just such a powerful moment showing this, like, he's just a creature. He hasn't really developed anything except, like, sensations. Or the famous scene of him and the little girl and the way that Karloff chooses to play that, the killing of her, throwing her into the lake. And the way that he kind of reacts by getting down and like splashing the water, unsure of what he's done, and then turning around like a terrified animal who knows that they did something bad, but don't know how to fix the problem. I mean, you see that all on Carla's face, which is underlined when you learn that he didn't want to do that, that he and James Whale got in a huge fight about that, that they just wanted to cut away and that it was that way for a while in the theatrically uh, released movie. I learned from watching a recent documentary about Boris Karloff, which you can find on Shudder, you know, James Whale when he took over the Frankenstein project from Robert Florey, he wanted a monster who could be frightened in addition to being frightening. So, you know, he didn't want Bella Lugosi, who he thought wouldn't be capable of that. That scene at the lake is is so important. I, I, I've seen this movie so many times and it's so iconic, but when I'm not watching it, I forget the nuances of Boris Karloff's performance, how sort of like when he's throwing the little petals into the water, how that look of like uncomplicated glee that he has on his face. And then after he's thrown the girl into the water, which as you mentioned, was cut out of most theatrical prints in 1931. It's since been restored. In that doc, there's a guy that's like, oh, they should have kept that cut out. And it's like, no, because somebody else points out, it's like, it looks like he sexually assaulted her. But I mean, I guess it was just like widely considered too much for 1931 audiences. And it was, as you alluded to, considered too much for Boris Karloff, who tried very hard to talk James Whale out of it. And apparently James Whale tried to punish Karloff for his being an upstart by a couple days later making him take and retake and retake and retake this one very meaningless shot of just the monster carrying Dr. Frankenstein over his shoulder. Like he did that to, to physically hurt him as punishment. Yeah, supposedly because Karloff had also worked construction for a while in the 20s that like physical problem is something that plagued him as he was trying to act later in his career, which explains why he was a little bit more uh, morose in his later pictures. I have new appreciation for Karloff's performance in this movie because I have a dog now. I, I, I didn't have a dog the last time I saw this movie. And you can see how the, the Frankenstein monster character really is like an animal. The whole subplot in this movie where like Fritz steals the criminal brain and they put a criminal brain into the monster's head. I mean, it's it's like pretty ridiculous and was wisely downplayed when they made Bride of Frankenstein. The monster is not even really given a chance to not be a criminal. He just behaves in the movie how any frightened animal would. You know, he hasn't had time to adjust. And pretty much, I mean, Victor Frankenstein, uh, sorry, he's not Victor Frankenstein. He's Henry Frankenstein in this movie for some reason. Yeah, not Igor Fritz. 
The lovable Fritz. Yeah, they, they make some strange choices with the names. The monster is basically just treated because he lashes out as any frightened, confused creature would. He's just treated as if he is a monster and must be completely disowned. And I mean, the scene at the end of the movie where he's caught in the windmill as it's being burned, the way that James Whale lingers on Karloff basically just like shrieking in agony like he is a dog that's been caught in a trap. It's really heartbreaking. Because we got this sympathetic Frankenstein right from the beginning, it kind of defined the Frankenstein monster from there. And it'd be fascinating to know what it would be like if we didn't have Boris Karloff in this central role. Like what would have happened if it was Bela Lugosi in the middle of this? Would we have gotten the same kind of performance? Would he have played it that way? Or would he have played it more like a snarling monster? I mean, we've gotten Bella as Frankenstein, arms outstretched because he's supposed to be blind, moving around. But again, that comes in the wake of Karloff that defined everything. So it's impossible to know what it would have been. It's sort of unthinkable because, I mean, I don't want to give this movie credit with necessarily inventing the notion that like, ah, but isn't the real monster society? Isn't the monster really just a victim? Because of course, you know, Mary Shelley already came up with that. But this movie and Lugosi's performance really did help popularize the idea. I mean, thinking of somebody else in this role, you kind of have to, I mean, maybe I sound like I'm overstating it, but you almost have to imagine a whole different 20th century. I mean, it was so influential of just the idea that a monster could be shaded, could have text. Texture. You know, certainly Nosferatu was not like this. No, it was like, look at this monster. Ah, he's scary, isn't he? And it's like, yep, that's it. That's all you got. Yeah, the fact that he's just so vulnerable and frightened in this movie. Anyway, every time I see this movie and I see Karloff's performance, I'm I moved anew by just the unspoken depths in it and how, how almost pure the acting is. The pure delight, the pure fear. I'm rambling and I feel like I'm being hyperbolic. You're being hyperbolic. About Frankenstein, (laughs) like one of the greatest horror movies of all time. I guess so. I know. I guess what I'm going to say is like there are elements in his performance that sort of anticipate to me the effect that some of the method performances in the 1950s would have. And of course, Universal, after Frankenstein, they're like, you want to play more monsters, right, Boris? And he went, do I have a choice? He did not. So he shows up in James Whale's The Old Dark House. As a kind of uh, shambling brute, he also shows up in The Bride of Frankenstein. And we have classics that we've talked about before, like Edgar G. Elmer's The Black Cat, where you get that kind of sinister, as Will previously said, heavy Boris Karloff. And it was kind of tough for us to pick what movie we wanted to do after that, because you look at Boris Karloff's credits and he has a whole bunch of them, but they're all pretty much hang at the same level in his filmography. Like you look at Letterboxd and you look at what is most popular and it's exactly what you would expect. Frankenstein, Targets, The Grinch Stole Christmas. And then it's like, I don't know, why not Comedy of Terrors or one of the Val Luton films that he was in, Isle of the Dead. I mean, those are primo Boris Karloff performances in stuff like The Body Snatcher, which is so goddamn good. Oh man, The Body Snatcher is one of my very favorite ones. I mean, The Body Snatcher was the one that I feel like when I saw that, the Val Luton style really clicked for me. That's the movie where I realized that Val Luton movies are about hanging out in the dark, hearing the rain and the wind. You know, that's what the horror is. And that's a rare one where Boris gets to play a lower class character and gets to imbue him with that kind of menace that usually pops up 
at the end of like the mad scientist ones. And I think that's why it's a great kind of showcase for him. And of course, he gets to play a great scene with Bela Lugosi in the film. But beyond, as you said, those the classic 1930s horror movies, the classic Howard Hawks and John Ford movies that he was in. Oh, and by the way, if you want to see a very different kind of Boris Karloff performance, check out John Ford's The Lost Patrol, where you see him really ham it up, you know, really play it to the rafters. It's kind of the opposite sort of performance as something like Frankenstein. But anyway, besides those, and then besides some of the Roger Corman ones from the 60s, after that, there's a vast body of movies, you know, like the movies that he made for Columbia in the late 1930s and early 1940s. I mean, he made a relatively small number of movies for monogram pictures, but there's a consistency to them. And he mostly made those movies in the mid and late 1930s, movies like the Mr. Wong series or Dick Tracy meets Gruesome. You know, he made those films largely because horror films were banned in England in the mid to late 30s. So there was a period when he had to sort of take what he could get. But nevertheless, there's a vast body of Boris Karloff movies that, yeah, it's hard to know which are the good ones. Like we watched one, The Man Who Could Not Hang, which was one of his Columbia pictures. And it's a very polite 70 minute film that for the first like 45 minutes seems to be a kind of PSA about the importance of accepting science. And it only really takes off when Boris gets a bunch of people in his mansion and says, I have chosen the time each of you will die. There is no escape. Boris plays a scientist who you might consider mad. Society might consider mad. But you know what? Maybe he has some good points. He's experimenting with this theory that if somebody dies, he can almost immediately resurrect them using contraptions and science and beakers and stuff. And he gets a guy. There's a guy who wants to take part in this experiment. But then right after Boris has killed him, and just as he's about to resurrect him, the police come and arrest him. And he says, no, no, don't you understand? You're going to be killing this man. I, let me just let me just do the thing. Let me just arrest him. Well, they don't they don't let him do the thing. And so he is put on trial, put to death. But his brilliant scientific technology is able to resurrect himself. And then he goes on a trail of vengeance against everyone who has ever wronged him. That's when he starts to get a little less sympathetic, in my opinion. And that's starts happening about 50 minutes into the 70 minute movie just so people will know we see the whole trial and you do get boris giving a big important speech about the importance of scientific progress but it's one of those films that you feel the filmmaker is a little bit uncomfortable with the horror so he really only gets to it at the end and while you get good boris the movie itself is just kind of you know at this baseline that makes it difficult to be like, oh, this is a Karloff one that you got to see. I do hear you, although I do think the good Boris in this movie goes a long way. I mean, it's great, but like you understand why it falls, you know, between all these other Boris making films was hang in the title because I was looking at him like, oh, my God, there's more than one that he did that has hang (laughs) right there. And it's like, which one is which? (laughs) Yeah, several movies with almost the exact same premise. I know that we also or at least I also watched The Black Room from 1935. Did you check that one out? I did. And this one is notable because it's directed, according to Leonard Maltin, by the only man that liked making horror movies or, you know, these kind of films. 
at Universal during this period. Yes, his name was Roy William Neal. He specialized in the Sherlock Holmes movies with Basil Rathbone. He also directed Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Which, Don't hold that one against him. Yeah, probably his most popular movie today. I was very impressed watching The Black Room from 1935 just because Roy William Neal is always just throwing some interesting composition at you. Mm-hmm. You know, the old dark house, the old spooky castle atmosphere, the graveyard atmosphere is very strong in this one. You know, he's always doing all sorts of wagon wheel joe shit like putting something in the foreground giving you a bit of a canted angle uh giving you some heavy shadows i definitely think roy william neal is one to put on the the termite artist list you know someone for further research the only issue is that you're gonna have to watch a lot of sherlock holmes films in that case i guess so anyway the black room uh, is notable too because boris karloff plays two roles the movie is set in 16th century hungary where there are these twin boys who were born, you know, at this castle, and there's the prophecy that the younger one will murder the older one. Now, would you believe it? That eventually does happen. Do we get twin dragon-like effects in the movie? Yes, we do. Boris is sharing the same screen. I think Boris, again, a lot of fun in this movie. Sort of a similar performance to the man they could not hang, you know? Mm. He can do the kindly thing. He can do the scary thing. Always, though, with a certain amount of remove, Mm -hmm. uh, if that's the right word I'm looking for. Always with a certain amount of, like, lip smacking pleasure in the scariness of it all. That's what people wanted from Boris. Like he knew what his shtick was and he was happy to deliver in all of these movies. What's interesting about these films is that they don't have any of the like monster hooks or real gruesome stuff to them. So it's kind of like, well, it's kind of a gothic thriller. And that's what you need to expect when you walk into these and you sit down for their mm, 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 70 minute running times. To conclude, I would just say, even though we were talking about how there's a vast body of Boris Karloff movies that it's sort of hard, hard to choose from or hard to differentiate or easy to forget which one is which, the upper tier of Boris Karloff's filmography is pretty much unmatched for a horror actor. I mean, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Black Cat, The Black Sabbath. Yeah, I was going to say that I really enjoy his late period in his career where he was such an icon that his mere presence and just, you know, the little subtle notes that he's playing were enough to just like make the movie like Black Sabbath. I mean, when he shows up in that one, uh, hosting it and the segment, just great stuff. His uh, narration performance in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, so goddamn good. So good because it really leans into the softness of him. There's a joyous side of Boris Karloff that that, that one really takes advantage to. Or even something like a, the late period British film, The Sorcerers, which was directed by Michael Reeves, the guy who did Witchfinder General. There's such a sadness to the Boris performance because he is playing an older man who, you know, is trying to relive his younger days. And he just knows how to hit those notes. That uh, It's kind of like a proto-targets in that sense. Still a lot to enjoy. And of course, you can watch the Mad Monster Party and go, why, why am I not enjoying this? I should be enjoying this more. <laughs> Which is the experience I have almost every two years when I watch it. So, Justin, that's it for Boris Karloff. Do we have any letters? We do have letters, as per usual. You can reach out at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Grendel, and he goes, Dear Important Cinema Club, been listening to the podcast for a couple weeks now. It's quickly become my favorite. I actually came across you both first on Letterboxd. I'm skeptical of most film podcasts, but when I saw you talk about truly important things in life, such as martial arts movies and the Three Stooges, Warner Brothers cartoons, and Men in Gorilla Suits, I realized you two are on my cinematic wavelengths. I mean, those are, you know, the important food groups, right? That's right. (laughs) I've since learned about your Golden Ninja video label, and I gotta say, the disc you put out looked really sick. 
Only problem is I'm still someone that doesn't own a Blu-ray player. I'm still someone that buys DVDs and VHS, and you would be surprised what DVDs people are getting rid of lately in favor of recent releases from your boutique Blu-ray labels. I do get a little jealous about missing out on some of the cool new releases, and even Criterion seems to be phasing out its DVDs. I guess what I'm asking is, should I switch over to Blu-ray? What am I missing out on, if anything? Always keep up the good work. Appreciate what you do, Grendel. So I've run into a lot of people who are like, well, I don't have a Blu-ray player. I watch everything on streaming. And this happens like all the time when people look at like Gold Ninja Video Blu-rays I have out for sale. They're like, wow, uh, you know, discs are still around, which I say, yes, they've never been more popular by weirdos like me who buy them in metric tons. On the other hand, I would also say Blu-ray players are really cheap now. Like you can get one for like mm, 30 bucks. There's really no reason not to pick one up at this point because also people are getting rid of all their Blu-rays so you can get them really cheap on the corner and pick them up and be like, wow, okay, this is interesting. And also Blu-rays, when it comes to special features, if you like us talking about this stuff, Blu-rays have so many more special features due to the data that they have on them versus DVD. If you've been consuming DVD for this long and you know, the picture quality, it's fine. Then when you go to Blu-ray, while there is a difference, it won't be mind blowing or anything just because, you know, it doesn't make that big a deal for you. But you'll just have so much more to enjoy on the Blu-ray disc, especially if some people start putting out, you know, boutique labels on the side of the road because they, you know, come to their senses and go, well, I don't need all this stuff. And also, most importantly, it's at a price point that's really not that bad anymore, as opposed to 4K Blu-ray players, which are still ridiculously expensive, like 150 bucks if you want to pick one up. I mean, yes, it really comes down to the fact that Blu-ray players are really cheap now. And since you seem to be a collector of physical media anyway, and since you are longing, as you should be, for those Gold Ninja video releases, um, it seems like a no-brainer to me. I should point out to people that are on the fence of, should I get into Gold Ninja video and you haven't yet? I put the commentary for Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla on YouTube. Just search Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla commentary you'll find it and once you listen to that you're gonna be like god damn it i need all of these now so check that out and uh be jealous that you missed out on ones that are currently unavailable and our next letter is from james and it goes dear justin and will following the recent golden ninja video announcement about white zombie and the current spooky season reminded me of some of my favorite horror hosts as a good midwestern kid i grew up watching Svengoolie on saturday nights and recently i've gotten into joe bob briggs last drive-in and i've been watching reruns of elvira I really feel like with the internet, the idea of horror movie host is a bit of a lost art that you don't see around anymore. Do you have any fond memories of watching these types of movie programs with the host? Are there any weird or unknown Canadian horror hosts you watch a lot of? Thank you so much. I've been a longtime listener and Patreon subscriber, and I appreciate the hours of content y'all provided while I scrub toilets at work. Ow! Happy Halloween, James. <laughs> well, I think this is an interesting question because Justin and I really... I think I can speak for you here. We really didn't grow up with horror hosts. I think there are sort of two waves of horror hosts. There's like, you know, the 50s and 60s. And then there was this other wave in the 80s led by Joe Bob Briggs and Elvira that was sort of ironic. It was sort of for like baby boomers who had grown up. Like Joe Bob Briggs and Elvira were before my time. Uh, I think the closest thing I had to a horror host growing up was Mystery Science Theater 3000. Well, Will, I'm about to shock you because I was about to answer the same thing as you. And then I remembered, 
We did have a horror host. We had our good friends at YTV for the One Dark Night Marathon. Yeah, so YTV was the local uh, youth television channel, you know, kids shows. Between the the shows, you'd have the PJs. They were program jockeys uh, who would, like, introduce the shows and stuff. And then every year on Halloween, there'd be a thing called Dark Night where they would do skits and stuff. And it'd be really spooky. And they'd show episodes of Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark? And you, Justin, you and Peter invited PJ Phil and PJ Paul to the Royal Cinema a couple of years ago to like recreate the magic. Not only did it once, we did it twice because people could not get enough of it, which really shows that there was nostalgia for this kind of like horror host thing. And it's kind of surprising they didn't try to capitalize it on any way and do, you know, the classic like, ah, YT we're just showing a bunch of public domain films and we could have got some like you know ironic gen xers to introduce it but that never really happened in the 90s i know they existed in local markets but like in canada we didn't really have any that i watched at least i also think pj phil just should have had george strombolopoulos's career don't you think but he did not and but you know people that grew up with him we still have the memories and if you look out at the Toronto night, perhaps you will still see him wandering about. <laughs> and if people are wondering, like, hey, what's this white zombie thing? Well, me and Will are going to be putting out a Gold Ninja Video Blu-ray in a couple of months of the Bela Lugosi film White Zombie. And because you may be wondering, wait, you're putting out White Zombie? Didn't Kino put out that out a few years ago? Yes, they did. But they didn't put out a 16 millimeter scan that used to belong to a library. That's right. It's going to be a beautiful preservation of the shittiest print of White Zombie you've ever seen, which I think is going to give it a whole different kind of atmosphere and authenticity. And me and Will acted in a few little horror host segments. Will wears multiple masks, puts on makeup. That's a real blast, and I think it'll be really fun as a Blu-ray release. And not only that, we'll also scan another uh, Bela Lugosi film that has never been released in HD. <laughs> so people are going to be wondering, like, oh, wow, did they find a lost Bella film? No, 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 we, d- we didn't do that. <laughs> as Will says that I often used to do when I introduce films, uh, set your expectations accordingly. <laughs> so uh, that's going to be coming soon to uh, Gold Ninja Video. And thank you very much for that letter. This week on our Patreon, we're going to be talking about horror movie marathons, which at at this point, it's kind of become a yearly tradition of doing an episode uh, talking about that. That's right. Justin and I are each going to recommend three movies. We're each going to curate a horror movie marathon for you to hold during the holiday season. And we're and we've each tried to pick a couple of deep cuts, a couple of movies you might not have heard of, or if you have heard of them, uh, a way to look at them from a different angle. So that's what we're doing on our Patreon this week at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And next week, it's finally happening. Guys, you can stop sending us letters about it. Somehow, one of the most requested directors that uh, of the Important Cinema Club, that's not Nick Rogue, it is Jean Relain, the man who pioneered the naked vampire film. That's right. And uh, I haven't seen a lot of Jean Relain, and I think it's mostly because when I have that itch, I scratch it typically by watching a Jess Franco movie. That's right. But I'm excited to finally immerse myself in... Uh, Europe's other great slow-paced naked horror guy. So are we going with the classics like Fascination, The Iron Rose, The Living Dead Girl? Sounds good. Uh, the Shiver of the Vampires. I don't know which one you've watched. Did you watch like The Nude Vampire? I watched The Nude Vampire, yeah. I mean, you look at these titles and I genuinely go, have I seen this one? I'm not sure. But you know what? We're jumping in. going to crack open my anthology of Jean Relais essays. So you know, this is a whole world we haven't discovered, and I'm excited on jumping in. So, until next week, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening.
Just want to remind you that I will be hosting a 24-hour horror movie marathon this October 29th, which is a Saturday, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. It will be happening on Twitch. And for the channel and more information, check out the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile at DeclueJ, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, and the letter J. I would also like to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include... Ruben Vasquez, Philip Willock, Regan Jones, Tony Gleed, John Walsh, Jason B., Hugh Brown, Matthew Smith, Neil Roberts, Ian McNamara, Thomas Prieto, Ben Walsh, Jude Lindsay, Michael Van Cleve, Cole Smith, Johannes Matrup, Michael Lane, Josh, Connor Willingham, Mariano Velasco, Zach, Mickey Savage, and Philip Jeffries. Thank you all for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. We now return you to a regular scheduled program. So I am recording this podcast from Berlin. That's uh, Berlin in Germany. I haven't really had that much of an opportunity to do a lot yet, although I intend to do things. So, you know, this would typically be the part of the podcast where like I would fill Justin in on all the sort of fun like movie related things that I've done. Um, I haven't really done a whole lot of fun movie related things yet. I did go to a bar last night that was called Filmkunstbar Fitzcarraldo, uh, which uh, is a, both a bar and a video store. Oh, oh, cool. A video store. Yeah, it has a whole basement full of DVDs. So uh, you should check that out when you're in Germany next. The other big film related thing that I've done was on the plane, I watched Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Just to put you in the mood of like, I'm going to a foreign country. <laughs> Who knows what they'll feed me. Yeah. Oh, boy. This isn't racist at all. I love that you said that you're like, oh, I'm getting into Berlin. And what's the Cinematheque playing? A Werner Herzog retrospective. I assume that's running like 24 hours a day. Yeah, the Berlin Cinematheque does have a Werner Herzog show on right now, which I do intend to see in the next couple days. Probably that's for the tourists. You are a tourist. Yeah. So I'm excited for that. You know, there is in a couple of nights, there's this one theater that's showing um, it is not the homosexual who is perverse, but the society in which he lives. And uh, I don't know if it's subtitled or not. I would say probably not. Probably not. But, you know, 70 minutes and I can say that I saw it in Germany. Are you going to the stores and you're like, hey, where are your hard, your hard boxes and your media books? That's what I really want. Like, what is the main store where I can get those bad boys? That's a good point. I should look that I up. I need my copy of Jet Li's High Risk, a.k.a. Total Risk in Germany. It sounds like you have some movie-related stuff all lined up, Will. And I'm also going on a trip to L.A. in a couple weeks. And it's wild when I asked on Twitter how many suggestions people had for stuff for me to do. And I was surprised that I thought you had gone recently in the last couple of years. But you point out you haven't gone since you were a kid. I would love to go to L.A. at some point. I'm still kicking myself that I didn't go and go to Monty Hellman's Airbnb when he was still alive. Um, but yes, one day I will go back to L.A. Uh, but what do you have planned? Are you going to see anything, do anything? Well, I'm definitely going to go to the theme parks because I haven't been to any of those big theme parks since I was also a child, probably about 12 years old. So I'm really excited about that. We're probably going to do studio tours, which is interesting because you can go like to Paramount and look at all the Paramount stuff. Is that something that you would be interested in when you go down to LA? Like, oh, look, they're filming, I don't know what sitcom, the Goldbergs or something like that. Um, I wouldn't necessarily be interested in seeing like the Goldbergs film, although I would be interested in like being on uh, the Warner lot or something, trying to find Clint Eastwood's bungalow if it's still there before they all shut down and there's just no one has any lots i'm just surprised that they even exist uh on that level but beyond that like it, it's interesting to look 
at LA and go, oh, look at all these movie screenings that are happening. And I could probably see in Toronto at some other point. <laughs> and that's the thing is like, when you go to these places, you need to find something that you could only ever do there. And when it's movie related, it has to be like visiting locations. Like you pointed out, oh, you know, I would go visit um, the place where Bella Lugosi smelled the flowers. But unfortunately, you told me that maybe that house has been torn down. It is. But the studio where Bella Lugosi still worked is there because there was a bar attached to it. And the bar is still there. Oh, that's Gold Diggers. Yes. I've heard good things about gold diggers. Yeah, we looked at photos and it looked like, oh, classy now. Not the haunt that Ed Wood would be doing his thing late in life. Well, to any L.A. residents, I encourage you, please go to Gold Diggers Bar and then in the alley next door, if you can get in if, uh, or, or climb the fence or do whatever you need to do. Somewhere down that alley is the tiny studio where they shot Plan 9 from Outer Space. So please go and do that for me. And then have a drink at Gold Diggers because apparently Ed Wood himself loved the it. The fact that you can rub shoulders with so much Hollywood history there. I mean, I'm sure the building probably doesn't really exist, but you can stand on a spot where all of these famous people also stood. And if people have any suggestions of what Will should do while he's in Germany, you should tweet the Important Cinema Club. Same thing for if you are an L.A. native and there's this really cool movie related thing that you think that I should do. Let me know. And I will add it to the list. I'm only there for a week, though. So there's only so many things that I can do. Also, I don't have a car. So that's going to limit my options a lot as well. Uh, hashtag Will in Germany. Hashtag Justin in, in LA. I just want the hashtag to be used for practical purposes. I don't want to laugh. 